If you are a scout or coach looking to find or help players, then Pitch is the website for you. It's a startup, but the idea is to complement the scout's role in finding talent, especially in lower leagues. Pitch is likely to arrange trial days in the future, so a scout might be very interested to make a profile. For a coach, it's about the onward development and mental health of released players, helping them find a team or club and provide a talent ID and development reference on Pitch. So make a profile today at www.pitchrmt.com. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Coaches Coffee Club podcast. I'm joined by my good friend, Mr. Matthew Craddock. Hello, Matt. Good, good evening, mate. You okay? Very well, thank you, mate. How are you? Very well. I think before we start, you have to explain to our listeners why such a delay between our last podcast and this one. Yeah. Maybe, maybe apologise even. Yeah, no, no apologies, mate. I mean, it's all good to take take time for yourself, isn't it? My my wife has given birth to our first child, so uh, it's been a roller coaster of experiences over the last few weeks. It's been amazing, but uh, and how are the three of you? All good? Yeah, doing very well, thank you, mate. Doing very well. Good. Um, I've now learned that time is not something that I can attach to certain tasks because <laughs> things take longer than ever I thought and uh, yeah I'd also just like to say it's fair that I don't think there's many men could do what women do when it comes to childbirth is there um, I won't disagree with you mate no no, no. I, 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 I uh I did some good coaching during the labor I used my Q&A and uh, <laughs> And um, I a few interventions, but mostly it was just observation. <laughs> and uh, but no, they're all doing great. Thank you, mate. So um, very good. Yeah, it's, it's good uh, to see you again. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a while. So thank you for for asking, mate. And I I believe you have a new addition to your family as well. <laughs> yeah, we have a new puppy that isn't sleeping. So. I'm probably as tired as you for the first time in a long time. So, <laughs> so for the last few weeks, we've both been sleep deprived and picking up poo. Yeah, that's pretty um, accurate. Yeah. Yeah, but no, it was good to good to see you again, and uh, thanks to to you for for organising today's guest. Uh, do you want to fill the listeners in who we had and yeah, some brilliant. Of the, we uh, some of the topics we covered because it was it was really interesting tonight. I really enjoyed that. Slightly different, but. It really yeah, good. it was excellent. We we went into uh, the Arctic Circle over to Norway to speak to a coach who is at, currently at Bodo Glimt um, and is currently uh, working in the professional phase and starts a new um, journey in January as a first-team manager over there as well. So uh, it's Tom Dent, and we spent the hour talking to him about uh, his coaching journey, about what has been going on at his club this year because they uh, their first team has been breaking all sorts of records uh, and won won the league as well. So it was really interesting to hear about what's been going on there and what has he learned from his experience there that he's going to try and take into his into his new challenge. So a really really interesting um, hour um, and and what a, what a work rate and um, he has and he brings his, that energy and also real clarity on his planning and his processes and his organization as well so um for me i think there was there was loads to take away i, I really enjoyed it yeah it's fascinating to hear him talk about not necessarily the risks he took but what what he was willing to throw himself into early in his career to go and gain new experiences and 
that opened up doors and and he's he's taken the opportunities which he alluded to. I, I like the fact that he started the conversation saying how he fell in love with coaching via championship <laughs> manager or football manager. And yeah. next year he'll probably be on it as a manager as himself, a manager. which is which is fascinating. So incredible. Um, we incredible. wish we wish Tom all the all the best of luck in his in his new role starting January first. So um, yeah, this is our conversation with him. We'll get on with it. Um, it's Tom Dent. Coaches Coffee Club podcast. Make sure you subscribe and share it because we enjoy doing it and hopefully you enjoy listening to it. Right, let's kick off. Uh, joining, I'm right in thinking from the Arctic Circle, I think. Yeah. Tom Dent, thank yeah. you very much for coming on. How are you, mate? I'm very good. And you? Both? I'm very well. Very yeah, well, evening, thank you. Evening, Tom. Good to chat to you, mate. Um, how was your evening? First and foremost, because I know you've been to the first team game. Oh, smashing. We've just beaten Rosenborg, who are historically one of the biggest powerhouses in Norway. They, uh, We were crowned uh, league champions for the first time in history last week. So, as is duty, uh, they had to uh, provide a guard of honour as we came onto the pitch, which is, Lovely. I think was a bit of a bittersweet moment for them. Um, and then the joke that's been going around is that they continue to do the uh, guard of honour for ninety minutes because we just beat them five one. So uh, <laughs> excellent. There's uh, something, something, something special going on there this season, isn't there? Magic. Uh, there's a there's a history with North Norwegian teams. They weren't allowed into the league season until 1976, and they were considered a little bit of like the outsiders of Norway for a long time. Uh, so for the first time in history, they've uh, they've won the title. It's the first team in the north of Norway ever to do so. Uh, and in the process, they've broken all manner of records. So they've currently played 26, won 23, which is a new record, drawn two, lost one, scored 90, conceded 25. So uh, they've got the most goals in a season historic ever. They've most wins now. They are level on points with most points ever with four games to go. And we've done it with the second youngest team in, in the league. So it's uh, pretty magical, has to be said. Wow. Well, listen, there's, there's loads I want to unpick on that because obviously being involved in that this year would have been an amazing experience, I'm sure. Let's rewind. If you could, would you talk us through perhaps your coaching journey or you know life journey really up to, up to this point so how, how have you got to where you are now um well it all started when I was a teenager and uh like most teenagers I fell in love with championship manager so I was a head of FIFA I started with championship manager I remember when I was about 14 they had a free that, that is by 2002. far the best that is the best start to any any um, <laughs> like background we've ever had on this and I think I've ever heard that's quality usually it's oh, I used to play I was a rubbish player but no it was listen I love championship manager that's, that, that there is that's gold I love that Tom that's quality uh, it, it, the thing is, it's true. So I remember it was it was the um, Shreddies and Shredded Wheat, those Nestle box cereals. They had a period of time where they did loads of free demos. And the one I got was a Championship Manager 2001-2002. It was a red one. And you could play any English team. So I remember I used to play, I used to come home from school. Used to, I used to be quite academic, so I did my homework as quick as I could. And then I spent the next three hours just playing football manager. Go downstairs, 
say hello to my parents, have some food, go back up and do it again. So I had a real sort of fascination with it in terms of like best players and uh, uh, like numbers, if you want to call it that, so 4-3-3 against 4-4-2, that sort of thing. And I kind of went, well, this is cool. And then when I was uh, when I was playing as a keeper, I used to be part of the county squads quite a lot. And I was part of the Dorset county squad, which from a footballing perspective is not the most well-known county for football because obviously it's quite spread out. There's a lot of farmland and, and things like that. Um, but they, they did this scheme. I was very close to the coach developer who was the manager of the 16. And he provided a free level one for us when we were 16. So I did my level one when I was 16 and I got the buzz. I absolutely loved it. I, I was not necessarily the most forthright person. I wasn't the one that was the, the, the leader or the one that wanted to be taking the space in the room. I was quite shy. Uh, but I used to play as a goalkeeper and I used to be known for talking a lot. So it was kind of just taking that characteristic set and taking it into coaching. So I got the bug when I was 16, went into a grassroots team uh, for two years and then I took my level two when I was 18. Um, and then I went to university and I went to Brunel University in London and did a sports science degree there for three years, um, which was a massive eye-opener coming from Dorset to going to West London. That was I can imagine. Myself. Um, but while I was there, I worked for the, the Fulham Foundation. Um, and I used to do a lot of like uh, PPA sessions, after-school sessions, holiday school sessions. And basically my first year university, because at the time, first year university was you turn up, you do what you need to do, and you, you come home, and as long as you're 40%, you're fine. Um, it was basically a full-time job doing as much coaching as possible. Um, and then when I was in the summer of my first year, going to my second year, I was doing a holiday school when I met a, a Norwegian father who'd come over to visit because uh, he brought his son and his son's best friend over and they'd come to Fulham because at the time the Risa brothers were there. So yeah, um, yeah. John Risa and Bjorn Helga Risa were both playing for Fulham at the time. And I remember it vividly because it was when Mark Hughes became manager. It was uh, it was after the infamous Europa League run from Fulham when they got to the final. And I remember that um, I, I can't remember which name was the guy sports studios, but it was outside Craven Cottage, and these thirty kids came and ruined his uh, his moment because we were moving from the pitches at Bishop Park down to Craven Cottage. <laughs> and um, when I met him, I didn't know anything about Norwegian language or football so I just made the session around them I did a kind of zonal type game where they were the captains and I did a lot of sort of speaking to them and showing them pictures as I was coaching and my and my dad was really pleased after and really appreciative and he said uh you know if you ever come to Norway let me know and you're more than welcome to stay with me and I was a romantic football fan at that point so I planned to go from the down the spine of Europe and start in Scandinavia and go down I've written letters to Germany and Spanish clubs and French clubs and every club possible to try and just come in and have a look. Um, and so we went, to, me and my friend went to Norway 2011, spent two weeks out there, met a lot of really good people and saw a lot of, of football in, in different um, degrees from the Norway Cup, which was more of a grassroots tournament, right up to uh, Boringer and Lillestrøm and Stormgudser, who were champions uh, around that year. And while I was there, we, we stumbled across these two guys called Hans-Erik Eriksson and Axel Bergo, who worked for a club called Follow. And Follow at the time were in the third level of Norwegian football. Um, but they were the first coaches that asked us as, as young coaches, what are you doing here? You know, every place you've been to, they've been very welcoming, very nice, very polite. 
but they were the first ones to sort of present to us and then say, so tell us about yourself. A bit like we're doing now. What's your coaching yeah. journey? What's your goals? What's, what's your philosophy? How do you like football to be played? Um, so we've built a really good connection with them. And it meant then in 2012, they ran their first football school and they had a guy called Hugo Pereira come in as a full-time under-19s coach and head of the sort of outside activity. Um, and he's now the assistant manager of Columbia, of all places. So he's a pretty, he's gone on and had a really good coaching career. Um, and again, I absolutely fell in love with it. I fell in love with the country. I fell in love with the culture. I fell in love with the people. And I remember telling my friend as we were coming back from the school, I could see myself being here. Um, so as the year went on, I, I graduated from university in 2012 and I was a bit like, what do I do? And then uh, I was really lucky to get offered a, a coaching position, basically doing everything. So I moved out in January 2013. I was an under-14s coach for what was a new academy team. I was head of goalkeeping, so I had all the goalkeepers from the first team down to the 13. And every sort of other activity, whether it was an after-school club, holiday school, I was there. Saturday morning, loved it. So I spent three years there coaching, getting loads of experience. I just passed my UA for B, so I was feeling on top of the world. Um, and then in 2015, it kind of, uh, not fizzled out, but it was a natural end. The team were promoted, then relegated, then promoted, then relegated in my three years that were there. So after the second relegation, the, the first team manager who'd been there for nine years left, the under-19s coach left, um, and it was kind of the end of an era, a lot of players left. So it was a good time for me to to go and try something different. And I'd originally had the plan to come back to England because originally going to Norway was just a, a process. It was a way mm. to go and get experience, try and coach at top level uh, and then come back and, and transfer that experience. But then I got offered a job as a assistant manager for a men's team who play in the third tier of Norwegian football. And I was 24 and I was like, yeah, I'm not going to get that opportunity again. So why the hell not sort of thing. So, um, it was an Irish guy, Gary Hogan, who took over the team and he sort of said he was a traditional player going into a management role. He, he knew what he wanted in his head, but he wanted someone that was a bit more pedagogical beside him. Um, so I spent a year in that role. I loved the role. Uh, we had a very mixed year. We had an a, a unbelievable cut run uh, where we won. We were knocked out in the fourth round, which is the last 16 in Norway. We beat um, only going to Solskjaer's Molda in the third round. Um, and that was an unbelievable experience. That was one of the few nights I've never had to pay for a, a really expensive beer in Norway, which is always good. Um, <laughs> and the, But I really struggled. We struggled with the league. We were inconsistent. We were good at home, uh, but not so good away. And it was, a, it was a transition year in the league structure. They were going from four groups to two which meant that the first team, uh, first place team went up, the team between second and seventh stayed up, and the team between eighth and 14th got relegated. Um, and I, we did really well in terms of we played some nice stuff and we had some mixed results and we ended up going down on the last day, finishing eighth, um, which meant we were relegated. And I really found from a personal perspective that I struggled with when we, per se, played well, played good football, uh, felt like we were the team on top, felt like we were the team creating chances, but then we'd lose the game. And that loss of the game could be from a set piece, it could be from a, a mistake or a transition or whatever. And I really struggled. 
because I couldn't I couldn't detach myself from process to result. Uh, so the result was really eating me up, and I was getting really nervous before games. And it was a it was a great experience. I'm really glad I went through it when I did because I felt yeah, it meant I could shape myself a bit more. But I realised that at that time I was more suited to being a, a developmental coach, working with younger players, where the results important but not the most important. Um, so again, was that, was that because of of where you were, as in age? experience or is that what you still feel like no it was it was I think at that time it was what I, I needed to I wouldn't see fail but I needed to get a reality check uh, mm. and it allowed me to sort of reflect and think a bit what why what do I want to be yeah. because I, I think that when you're a young coach there's a lot of there's a lot of uh a lot of young coaches that sort of try and go through the system quite quickly. So they might work with the youngsters and then sort of the younger six to nines. And then immediately they want to go and work with the under 11s and they immediately want to go and work with the under 13s. And they think they want to get up the ladder quite quickly. Yeah. Whereas I got up the ladder quite quickly and realized that perhaps I got up there a bit too quickly. Um, and therefore needed to not necessarily take a step back, but just go into a, a safer environment for my own development. Um, so when I was given the, the opportunity to work as a as a 16s to 19s coach in Bulldog now as I am, I felt it was a really good balance between 16 to 19. You can start thinking about the end result being the result of the game, but it's still at an age where the most important thing is to produce players for the first team. That is the role of a 16 to 19s coach. Um, so I was very lucky that. Again, I had plans to go back to England when, when the Stuart Arsling job finished. Um, but I was very lucky to, to get the chance to come here at the end of 2016. Um, and then I had two years as a... Well, I had one year as an under-16s coach, although I did some bits between the, the 16s and the 19s. And then I had one year as an 18s coach. Um, and then two years ago, the academy was restructured um, as we had a an English academy manager, Greg Broughton, come in the year before and he wanted to change the structure slightly. Um, so at the beginning of last year, I was I was given the role as lead face from 16 to 19. And I had the, the reserve side, if you want to call it that, as, as my team, um, while still dipping between the 17s and 19s. Um, and that's what I've been in for the last two years. And that's where we are today. Well, before, before we jump into your role then, there's, you, you said it a few times. You said, oh, I've been lucky. I've been lucky. It, it didn't sound very lucky. It sounded actually quite thoughtful and considered and planned. And you mentioned processes quite a bit. So, I mean, it, what jumped out at me was the amount of extra work that you did. You know, you talked about doing at uni. You know, I, I went to uni, did the same degree. And I wish I'd done what you did in your first year because I didn't do that. I uh, <laughs> did the bare minimum. And then... Um, so for me, a lot of extra work that, that jumped out a lot, um, but also as well taking taking a risk as well to go out and do something in a in a different country in a language that you don't know. Um, was that something that came easy to you, or or did you find it quite difficult and you just thought I'll throw myself into it anyway? I think um, when I when I got the opportunity to come to Norway, I didn't think of anything else other than oh my god, I'm going to work full time in football. 
<laughs> I didn't give the language a thought. I didn't give the fact I was moving away from my family a thought. I had a girlfriend at the time that we, we were together for a year after I moved to Norway. And then we both decided that it wasn't right for both of us at that time. Um, but I didn't, I didn't really think of anything like that other than, um, oh my goodness, how lucky am I? Or not lucky, I keep saying lucky. How good is it that I can work as a full-time coach? It was only after the first year that I then took a grip on the other thing. So it was only after the first year I started learning the language. It was only after the first year that I saw of it more of as a, do you know what? This could be something that's longer term than not just a mini adventure. Um, and once that mindset shifted slightly, things happened quite, not quickly, but things uh, solved themselves quite well. Um, because you go from a period where you go, oh, I can just sort of do it my way and that's that, to actually going, do you know what? I've got a lot to learn here and this is a great place to do it. Um, I mean, the coaching staff that we had at the time, um, the head coach who I said left after the nine years, he's now the assistant for the national under 18s. Um, the 19s coach when I first joined, as I said, one was now an assistant in Colombia's national team to Carlos Quiroz. One is now head of the women's game in Norwegian football and has worked as the under-21 assistant uh, for four years previous to that. Um, one who started was a player and then moved into uh, a, a coach's role. He's now one of the assistants for another elite series team in Norway in the men's game. And the best one to last is there was one guy I lived with, a Portuguese guy called George Cadera, who was an unbelievably good person, an unbelievable coach with the youngsters. And he's now working as the head of the under-23s in Benfica. So that environment as a coaching environment for a Norwegian second division club, which, by the way, had not a lot of money, no resources, and just was a, was a first and foremost environment. Um, when you open your eyes to what you had there at that time, it was, it was an incredible experience. And some, there's a lot of what I do now, which I still do, and there's a lot of people that, I still speak to from that environment that are, are very good friends and, and very good people. I, when I need some advice, I know I can just pick up the phone and, and they're there. Tom, you know, you, um, you said earlier about <clears throat> doing extra um, and the, I guess in the back of your mind, uh, a career in football was always the goal you said there when you realised, oh, full-time in football is going to be excellent here. But how much did you attribute that outcome with the, um, the, the extra stuff you did. So you said about writing to clubs across Europe and, and asking to go and see them and, and making, I guess, maybe personal sacrifices with your, your free time and financial to go and add extra things to your boat. How, how much is, is that attributable to where you found yourself now? Because a lot of people, like you said, do the courses, want the jobs and then want to move up pretty fast. But sounds like you've done a lot of extra stuff to to get you to I guess it's opened more doors for you and then you've been able to to take those opportunities but I'll be interested to hear how important or valuable you find that side of things to to your your progression and your career now I think there's two sides to it and they're both just as important um the first one is is correctly the the more time you spend on the grass the more sessions you do the the different types of of working playing groups that you work with means the more experience you get none of it's bad 
none there's no such thing as a bad experience when it comes to that i remember again when i was at university i was doing full and the full and foundation was a lot of small kids i did some work with brentford's women's team so i was working as a as a assistant there with the women's team um i took one of the university teams um as a sort of player coach i was doing goalkeeper practices across all of them because i could um and it was just a case of I, I just wanted to drink in experience. And, and, I, and I'm and i a firm believer that if you conduct yourself well enough and you work hard enough, you you make things happen because people, people recognise that. Um, on the flip side of that, I believe that networking is important. And I think that I'm a terrible networker. I'm not someone that will um, sell myself on... Uh, social media or, or things about this is what I've done on you know these are the players that have made debuts or things like that but what I do do is when I meet someone or when I when I um a bit like how me and Matt met actually um I'll always make sure to stay in touch because I always I believe that human part uh and people's journeys are so unique that somewhere along the line you're gonna you're gonna cross paths again um and it's 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 the simple things from not just coaching courses, but even like say, even the first time I came to Norway came from a parent I met during a course. And I made sure to keep that connection then so that when the time was right to go over, they were more than welcoming. Um, and I believe that side is really, really important um, to, I wouldn't say build a relationship, but it's a bit like your players, you know, the players you build trust in by taking an a interest in not just the football. You, you take an interest in their in their outside lives. You take an interest in their uh, personal life in terms of how the family and that is, and that for me is the same with the connections you make. Um, but you have to take an interest in them as a person first before you can start talking the football side. Um, and I can name you countless examples of, of situations I've I've had help with or solved by people want to do the best for me and going that extra step for me because I've gone that extra step for them somewhere on the line. Um, so I believe it's, it's a mixture of both. You have to, you can't be a coach if you don't put the time on the grass because it's the only way you learn. Um, but also the, the, the connections you make, the people you meet, you have to make the effort to, to keep them as connections and not just um, recognize someone and go off. Oh, he's a coach in Norway, I might be able to, you know, I might just contact him if I need a job in Norway or something. It's more than that. You have to, you have to make the effort to, to build a relationship much like you would do with a player. It's funny, it's mentioned a lot, isn't it, in, in the FA courses, particularly on the, on the youth sort of, um, the string and the youth award, advanced youth award, talks about knowing the, the player as people first. It's mentioned a lot, but it's, it's refreshing to hear people actually buying into it and caring about it. It's not just something you talk about and go, oh yeah, we know we should do that. And every now and then we'll put an arm around them. Um, it, it's more than that, isn't it? it you, you have to be able to have that relationship so that you can understand that person to help them become a, a better player, for example, from the coaching point of view. Yeah, and usually you gravitate towards the types that are similar to you. So if you were a bit of a maverick, you tend to gravitate to the mavericks because you can relate to them. If you were, if you have a studious player who might not be the the best technically, but is the smartest, you tend to gravitate to them. And I think that's completely natural. I, I think that's totally okay to do. 
But I think, as you say, you have to use the time to find out what makes your players, not your players, what makes the players tick. Um, because it might be something that where, you know, I, I have situations, I like to have a conversation with every player before they start the game. But I'll have a conversation with them about completely different things. So I might have a conversation uh, to the player and say, make sure you remember this during the game and be brave with this. I might have another conversation with a player where I say, how was your dinner last night? You know, did you have a nice evening last night? Or how was your family? Um, it's whatever makes them feel safe and whatever makes them uh, secure enough to be able to do them what they, what they want to do after. And as I say, I think it's the same for coaches. I think to, to build a trust as a coach, you have to show interest in not just what they're doing footballing-wise or what the result was last weekend or, oh, he's a good player. But, you know, how is the family? How are you, how are you finding, uh, to said to Lee, how are you finding being a new dad? You know, because that, that, that's, that's important to me. It's interesting you said there about gravitating to the players you most like because that must be why you're always around the subs, Matt. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> they are my favourites. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing I wanted to to pick your, your brains a little deeper on, Tom, is around, you said around um, struggling with that sort of transition from process or performance and results-based. They're really interesting to to see how you've worked on that um, and how you maybe found the blend of the two, uh, especially in that sort of when you're doing the 16s and 19s work. You said it's it's very much about development, but also preparing players for first team as well. So what were the what were the biggest challenges you faced being a developer going into a, a sort of results-based role? And how did you work on that? Because I, I know some of our listeners might be in similar similar um, situations, going from youth coaches to maybe more senior or even at grassroots level, you see a lot of coaches following their teams all the way through and taking into 18s and senior roles in grassroots level where developing is still important. But now there's that that winning element. Talk to me about that because I'm fascinated with how you, you spin both plates. I think that the first thing I did differently in uh, Borderland that I have now compared to what I did previously was I was a lot more empowering um, with the players group. Um, and I think what's changed a lot in coaching, even in recent history, is that the head coach now is no longer seen as the one above everyone else. I think what you're starting to see is you're starting to see head coach, the distance between the head coach and the players getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So it's almost a flat um, hierarchy where the coach sits alongside the players and acts almost as a as a guide rather than uh, a leader or not a leader but someone that sits on the top so one of the first things I did with with Glimpse as I said was I, I got to know the players quite well uh, and they were a team that were used to uh, used to winning everything local but when they played national games they struggled and it was it was like a massive contrast I remember the first year we had in, in 2017, uh, we played a whole, we played the winter and we pretty much won every game. And then we played a, in the autumn and we lost every game. And we didn't lose every game um, sort of badly because um, a lot of the games were, qu were close games, but there was key, key um, factors in the games that meant that we made mistakes. Maybe we tried to play out from the back and central defender the 
made a, a, a wrong decision with the ball and then they scored it or whatever. Um, and I think what that learned me a little bit was that I remember one, one half time, we, um, we were two nil down. Uh, it was sort of the sixth game in a row that we'd been losing at half time. And I was sort of fed off of saying, you know, we're doing really well and we're, we're, you know, we're in the game and we're just unlucky. So I remember that I just sat down at half time in the change room and just sat there. I didn't say anything, didn't say one word. And the players were looking at me as if to say, uh, you know, what do we do now? And I remember sitting down and sort of smiling. And it took them a few minutes. And then my captain started talking and sort of saying, I think we need to do this. And the next person started talking and the next person started talking and eventually the whole changing room then started having a discussion. So the only thing I remember saying at half time was, you're doing really well to identify the problem. Now make sure you, you find a solution to it. Be agreed on how you're going to solve it. That was all I said at half time. So they carried on talking and the referee blew his whistle. We went out in the second half and we won the second half 1-0 but lost the game. And that was, again, a big watershed for me because it made me realise that actually the players actually know quite a lot. So when I then went into the, the reserve role in 2019, I made sure that the preparation work I did was right. Was right. So when it came to opposition analysis, when I came to um, historical sort of to be top five, you need to get these amount of points, you need to score these amount of goals, you need to win these amount of games. I found out all that information. And then I basically said to the players, what do you think? And they said, well, you know, some wanted to finish mid-table, some wanted to finish just to survive the season. We were newly promoted. So I said, okay, let's go with new, uh, staying up and then we'll reassess. So we did that. And every week we went back to, you know, how we're doing with the goals we set. And we'd, we'd analyse the games and the players themselves would analyse the games. So they would come to me. Uh, we used to do a video, the first real training session after a game. And they would come to me and say, I've got these clips I want to show. So I'd find the clips, put them ready. And they would present back to the boys then what their thoughts were. And there'd again be a discussion. And there'd be sort of me and my assistant would be asking questions based on what they said in terms of, well, why is that? Or that's a really good example. Could you just give it a little bit more uh, depth? And what happened then is as time went on, um, players would start saying, when someone said, I think we could do this, players would start putting their hand up and say, yeah, that was my fault. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I should have done this. I made a mistake. And then you've won. As a coach, you've won then. Because as a yeah. coach, you can just step back and say, well, go on then. And, I know we're talking like development versus results, but we we are in a league. We in Norway, when you play reserve football, you play in the league system. So it's like the Spanish B team. So we had to to stay up in inverted commas to make sure that the arena was the best arena for players to develop in, in the senior level. And for us, that's the fourth tier of Norwegian football. Um, that's sort of the last national uh, league or semi-national it is. So for us, it was important. For the club, it was important to stay up. But from that, from that team now, there's two that have gone out on loan, the three that have gone out on loan and signed professional deals. There's um, one we talked about earlier about the game. There was one who's playing his second ever start as a central defender. And he came into the system late and he did really well this evening. 
Another one came off the bench and played left wing. He was my captain in 2019. Um, and it was just something that made me realise that actually I don't need all the answers. I don't need to... Uh, when I was when I was in Stuttgart, I was thinking in 2016, I was afraid that I had to know everything and I had to prove to the players that I did know everything to get their respect because I was 24, 25 at the time and some of them were slightly older. Um, but what I learned with that group was actually I don't need, they have the answers with them. My job is just to make sure that the environment's right, the training environment is the best quality it could be and to test the players based on what they needed to be tested on. And once I solved that in my own mind, then it made a lot of things a lot easier. It's a fantastic approach. A really good example as well, that half-time team talk. Go, just jumping back to what you mentioned around, you know, when you find out stats on, you know, what, what to finish in certain parts of the, of the table. And um, you shared that with the group and, and asked them about where they, they'd want to finish. When, when you talk about setting yourself goals as, as outcome goals, how, how did you drill that? back or strip it back to to get processes because you mentioned processes quite a few times around focusing on processes how how did you strip it back from those you know if, if your goal was to get x number of points um you know over the season or during a month or whatever what how do you strip it back to a process that they can focus on and control and work on if I give you an easy example, um, part of, let's say, with the wins was that, you know, you have to score on average so many goals. You have to score so many goals across the season, which means that you need to average so many goals per game. So once we established that, the next question I would ask then is, well, who's going to score those goals? You know, as a striker, how many goals are you going to, how many goals do you need to score this season? Well, I think I can score between 10 and 15, okay? So, my expectation of you then is that if you have set yourself that as a goal, as a rough goal, it's not I'm going to score 15 and you score 14, that I haven't managed it. If you score between 10 and 15, then my next question to you is, is what are you going to do to make sure that you can, what can you control? What can you make sure you do to make sure you get those goals? Well, it means I need to take my chances. Okay. So if a couple of games went by and I hadn't scored a goal, then I would just say to them, hey, I think you're playing really well, but I think you're just missing something. You know, there's a bag of balls. There's a goal. Just go and have 10 minutes after training. I'll give you a hand and just see how many finishes you can do. And then the next time that happens, I don't want to be the one to tell you to do it. I want you to say, Tom, can I have a bag of balls and go and do it? Um, and a little bit the same with defending. When we, when, we, when we talked about clean sheets and that, you know, I'd say to the essential defenders, look, it's not your responsibility to... Uh, defend everything as it is the goalkeepers. It's a team effort to defend. But what can you do to make sure that we are uh, as defensively solid as we can be? Well, we need to affect the rest of the team. Okay. So let's go and let's go and watch some video. Let's go and look at some scenarios. You come to me and say, can we have a look at this? And then we can talk about it. And then if we need to take it into the group, then we can take that in as well. So it was about basically saying, this is what you need to, this is what on average you need to do. Um, and then, you know, we've got to find a way of making sure that we can control those controllables within that. Now, that was in 2019. We talked uh, about how amazing Borderlands have had this year. And what's been fascinating by them, and it's a process that I've had to reflect a lot on, is they've done the exact opposite. They've had no goals set. So they've had no 
you know, they talked about how traditionally they would sit down in March before the season began in April and sit down and go, right, where do you think in the table we're going to finish? The last two years, they haven't. They've just made sure that every time they go into training, they control the controllables, which means they make sure they train the best they can, they deliver the best they can, and they, they are a performer in everything they do inside and outside the pitch, to which that's extended to meditation sessions, to diet control, to... Uh, work in the gym to extra training at the end just finishing with, with four or five players whatever each individual player feels they need so long as that they are process orientated it was really funny last week when the glimpse had confirmed it and the first question that was asked to the captain was you know this is the historic moment how do you feel and his response was actually I feel quite disappointed because I felt I felt we played poorly I felt we had a poor game today even though they won 2-1 um so I'm having to actually fight my own thoughts on that in terms of how you get goals and how you put them in a process. Because what Glimpse success story has shown this year is actually you don't need the outcome goals either. But you can't just mm. do it overnight. It's not something that you can just turn around to your players and say, right, forget the goals of the season, just go out and do your best. You have to, you have to create that culture first. Yeah, yeah you, you have to create that. Because again, if you say that to certain players, they'll think you've lost the plot because it's not traditionally something you do. Yeah. Um, so I think, again, that empowerment and that um, group dynamics that have um, that are a big part of how I believe in coaching, um, I think it's the beginning then of, of taking that to another step. So I was going to ask you what, what was so special about the first team this, this season. Is, did you sum it up in, in that? A brief sentence around them just controlling the controllables and performing in everything that they do, or, or was there is there other things that you've seen that that you thought, oh, do you know, I've not seen that before, or maybe I have seen it before, but I know that has really added to to what's happened this year. No, I think it's a good representation. I mean, I know when you when as coaches, especially young coaches, you tend to scour the internet for the world's best training drill or exercise or, or something <laughs> like that. And they've, they've done predominantly the same training cycle from January to now with some tweaks along the way, so it's not so monotonous. But there's been times where the head coach has called training off after 35 minutes and just said, nah, you guys aren't there today. I'll see you tomorrow. Um, done. And they're done, that's it. And, and the point is, is that they, 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 everything they do on the training pitch is at 100%. So, you know, whether it's an 11 aside uh, game, the training sort of training match in, in the session, whether it's uh, attack versus defence phase of play, whether it's a small possession drill, whether it's like the warm up, everything is 100%. Um, mm. And they are the fittest team in the in the league by a mile because they do everything 100%. It's not again, there's no secret sort of diet or they just train hard. They just train. Every player is is clear of their role, clear of their expectations, and they deliver. Um, and that's taken two years to the to build. In 2018, they were 11th, and we confirmed not going down on the last day. Uh, we sold two of our most influential players in the winter. Uh, in 2019, then we were the the, the golden story because we were a little ball of limps, and all of a sudden we were in the title race. And then we fell off a little bit near the end because we'd never been in that position before, so we didn't know what to do. Um, but we still finished second and it was the fourth silver or fourth second place they've had in history. 
Um, and then we sold our, our two best players in the run-up to that. We sold one uh, Hawk and Evian to Aidan Alkmaar, and we sold one left winger to Egypt, who was sort of 25. And everyone was a bit like, well, what do we do now? Um, and then we bought Kofi and Coase, who's gone on to have a, a really good season in, in his own terms, his best ever season. And we, we promoted some other players in other positions. Um, and then we've just gone from strength to strength. So the, the big secret is there is no secret apart from what people tell you, which is work hard, um, be organised and have belief in what you do. That, that was going to be my, my question, Tom, is because every, every coach at every level will want their players to give 100% every time. How, how do you go about getting that? every single day it, it you know what I mean is it is it literally just spurring players on is it like you alluded to there if standards are not met stopping and going home because everyone wants their players to give 100% every session don't you how obviously it's it's worked there yes you've got exceptional players and all that but there's a lot of good players everywhere isn't there how have you managed your club to keep them buying into that for so long, for so consistent? I think the big change happened, I think, beginning of 2019. Uh, the head coach decided that he needed to change something. Glimt, historically, have always played 4-3-3 in a very traditional way. They've had out-and-out wingers. They wanted to make um, overlapping runs on the wings, cross the ball in, and a big target man striker would put in the box, you know, or put in the goal. Or they would sit low and counter-attack at pace. They, always, they, they were the two sort of traditional ways. And the head coach decided that, uh, do you know what? We need to we need to evolve. We need to take that and, and play more modern football. So from a coaching perspective, that was one part. But then on the other side, then the club took a decision, started with one player and then progressed to have a sort of mental coach within the group. And the mental coach, again, it, 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 there's one-to-one conversations. But one thing they've promoted then within the group is vulnerability and accountability. So vulnerability being that it is okay to not agree. It's okay to underperform as long as you accept that and say, do you know what, boys, I, I've, I'm, I've got that wrong. Sorry. Or that when you are doing your 100%, you're doing your 100% for the group, not just for you. So one of the big things about this group, and there are players who are, I wouldn't say egotistic, but there are players that are not totally team players, but they know their place in the group. They know that I need to deliver. Um, and the coach, the the core members of that group then manage the changing room. So again, I think in order to get that 100% in the group, the group have to trust each other. The group have to believe that if you are doing your bit, then everyone else will do their bit. And then once you get that, it's amazing what can happen. You talked about, you know, having superstars in our team. Our team have got no superstars. Our team are a bunch of players that have either come up from the academy, have failed somewhere, have come to glimpse to try and get better, or um, are players that come from our own system that have a big identity to the area. Um, I can give you a very easy example. Kasper Junker, who's the striker for this year, he scored his 20th league goal this season. Uh, his combined tally in Denmark previous to that was eight goals. That's not just in one season, that's combined. He scored 32 goals now. No, sorry. He scored 26 goals now uh, across one and a half seasons in Norwegian football. 
Um, now that's not, you can't tell me that's because of uh, necessarily being the best player ever, but something's unlocked him while he's been here. 12 months ago, we had a winger who was borderline on his way out and then the penny dropped. And he's now got 34 goal involvements this season, 17 assists, no, 19 assists, 17 goals. The winger we signed to AC Milan, it was the same. He went on a loan two years ago, couldn't get in the side in a team in the division below and came back. Penny dropped. So when we sold the winger to Egypt last uh, winter, came in, and again, he left for AC Milan and started for AC Milan in the Europa League three or three days ago. It was on Thursday. So it's the environment and the, the not non-negotiables, but the expectations within the group and the accountability in the group. But once players have accepted, they've just flown. But it's taken sometimes some players longer than others to get to that point. It's so really good. It's really good, Tom, listening to hearing about what, what learnings you've taken from this experience. Because firstly, it sounds like you've been around some really interesting people and staff and players. Um, but also some of the processes that have been in place there have been exceptional for you to take away. Before, before we consolidate some of your learnings, would you like to explain what your, your next role is? Because you're, you're coming to the end of your time at your current club, you have a new role starting now. Would you like to explain to the listeners what your next challenge is going to be? Yeah, so uh, as of January 1st, I'm taking my first senior men's role as a, as a head coach. Uh, I'm going back to Stuart Oslink, who I was with in 2016. Uh, since I slash we got them relegated to the fourth level in 2016. They survived, they got promoted straight back up, survived relegation on the last day, won the league and got promoted. And currently uh, four points off relegation with three games to go. Um, so it's a little bit of a nervy end now, but um, <laughs> hopefully as of 1st of January, I'll be head coach in a second tier club in, in Norway, um, which I'm extremely excited about. And I'm, uh, I'm, yeah, I, I say I'm nervous. I'm not nervous yet, but I imagine that when the first, the first time I have to put the training kit on and stick my boots on, I imagine there's going to be some butterflies there flying somewhere. Yeah, butterflies. It's, it's excitement, Tom. It's excitement. Um, just by the way, if we if we roll back 35 minutes, that just explains how none of this is luck. So when you keep saying, you know, I've been very lucky, the, the last 35 minutes you know, I think uh, proves me right that it's not luck at all, mate. So um, really pleased with you. From this point on now, Lee, it's, it's Gaffer on the podcast. It's not Tom. So um, Tom, what, what, go on. What's, what's the, what's the feeling then moving into this new role? I know it's something new. It's something different. You mentioned before about head coach coming in line with the players, less, you know, uh, overarching, do as I say, and more, how do we do what, where are you going to sit, you know, and how, how are you going to try and approach, you know, your, your first, you know, the first 90 days is the, is the big term, but how are you going to approach your first period at, in your new role? Well, the, the first thing I have to say at this is that if you'd asked me in 2017 what I was going to end up as, I would have said I will always be a support man. So I'll either be a, a assistant coach or a goalkeeper coach or a youth coach or something. Um, because I felt that I didn't have that 
let's say, authority that you've just described there, to be ever become a head coach, I didn't think it was the fashionable thing to do. Um, when I took the role as lead phase, I made a conscious decision to get my own mental coach for myself um, because I felt like I needed to learn to control my mind because I was very much someone that would take stuff home with them. Uh, and that experience the last two years has really helped me build confidence in myself, but also build clarity in what I would like. So you talk about extra work. Uh, I last July had a, a little notebook and I had a double page and I wrote down what's my plan for the next three years. And I had plan A and I had plan B. Plan A was to stay where I am now, but work my way into the first team in some role. And I had a list of, right, what do I need to do to get that to happen? Uh, what could cause that or what could be difficult with that? What's going to stop me from doing it? And what's the considerations then in terms of the other side of my life, so the social life? So for Maria, my girlfriend, what's the effect on her? What's it affect my family? Things like that. And plan B was then to do as I'm doing now, not quite at the level I was expecting, but to go out and be a head coach somewhere lower and work my way up. So all I've done in the last 18 months is prepare, as you say, for January the 1st. And what I've done is I've come up with a, I've got a playing document. Um, I've got a pre-season plan. I've thought about the first meeting I have with the players. I've thought about what the important conversations to have. Um, I've thought about how would I structure my staff. So that all that work now means that when I start January the 1st, I feel like I have some sort of control of what I'd like to do and I'm not feeling like I'm shooting from the hip and kind of just making decisions willy-nilly. Um, so what's important for me first 90 days is I can't go in there and say, this is how I want to play football and everything else. You, I'm not going to do... Um, uh, was it Brian Clough who went in and said all your medals have been have been a waste of time because they, they haven't been run one in the right way? Um, so so that's, not that's, saying, no, that's not meeting one. That's no. not first meeting. No, not meeting one. No. So, <laughs> so uh, the first thing we've got to do is, is is get the buy-in from the players, and the way I get the buy-in from the players is I have to get them to believe in me. Now I'm very lucky, but I'm not lucky. I keep got to stop saying that. I'm very coincidental that six or seven players that were there the last time I was there are still there. So, and they were apparently a big, uh, they gave the board a lot of good signals to have me come in again. So that process hopefully will take a little bit less time, but I've still got players there that I've, I haven't met before, I haven't worked before with. So I, I've got to use time to get to know them. And um, I've got to make time to find out what they want to do. Like, do they want to push on? Do they want to to just maintain that level? Do they want uh, to improve as players? Do they want, I need to find out about them. I need, to, I need to find out about their culture. I need to find out then how uh, their culture matches with my culture. And, and we have to find a happy medium between the two. Um, and then I think the next thing that's important is we have to find out how we're going to get there. So, you know, what, some of the first questions I'm going to ask them is, is quite simple. What do you want to keep? What do you like about either training or, or the way we play or what, what, what for you is, is working. And on the flip side, then what, what would you like to change? You know, some will say, of course, like a bit more money or some might say, I want to train an hour earlier or I want to do more shooting drills or things like that. That's fine. But, you know, what, what, what do you think is going to take your performance to the next step? And then it's my job to facilitate it. Um, and year one then is just about tweaking what they do on the pitch already come in with some new ideas about how to do it on the training pitch 
and to make them be the best version of themselves um, and listen to the, the voices right around me and, and just be the one that if there's a tie off that I have to take the final decision um, because I'll make mistakes. I, I can't, I was very clear when I had the interview with the club that if they wanted someone that um, was going to guarantee them survival in the division they're in now, I'm not the man because I have zero experience at that level as a head coach. And that's just being honest. Um, but if you want someone that will work really hard, that will have a good relationship with players, which will look deeper in the club at, at how we can, you know, get a uh, more consistent youth system and, and have a bit more processes around the first team, then I'm I'm the man, and I believe strongly that I am that person. Um, but I have to use the first weeks and months to listen, to adapt, and then to point them in the direction to go and take everyone with me. Tom, how are you going to work on the grass? What um, what the sessions do you like to use in terms of structure or, or content? Um, I know you said you'd have those conversations with the players to see about areas of focus, but are there any specific ways you like to work on the grass? Um, and is that different to your work with younger players? Um, like I say, me and Matt are big advocates for small-sided games, condition games for, for teaching and, and learning and wondered if that's something you'd use at senior level. Um, or have you got difference in opinion or preferences around the on the grass bits? I think um, I think when it comes to me as a coach, the two things I like to advocate with, with stuff on the grass is number one, you have to give them a decision to make. It doesn't mean that it has to always be in a game orientated, but you have to give them a decision where it's either this or this, and you give them a stimuli or give them something to make them, to help them make that decision. So uh, you might have, for example, a small-sided game where they get X amount of points if they score in the middle of the pitch and you give them X amount of points if they dribble on the outside of that little goal. Um, and the reason for that is just, to, as I say, give them a decision. You're not giving them something concrete they have to do, but you give them possibilities and then they have to make the decision to find out what the best way is. And then when they've made that decision, you you instigate a process of feedback to help them find out why that might be. Um, I learned from my previous experience with senior players, particularly at this level where they're semi-professional, that you know they just want to play. They want to be told what to do and they want to find out how they can get better and improve it. So I think it, it's going to be a trade-off. I think that I'll use a lot of things like uh, pitch mapping. So for example, to give you an easy example of something I'd like to improve, uh, they tend to play with their wide players very wide, but they're quite disconnected. So their their fullback and their winger will be very much in the same line and very much occupying the same areas. So I think the only the way I'm going to incorporate that is just put a dotted line down the outside channel and split it into two and basically just say, look, you can only have one in any channel at any time instead of having two. Um, film the sessions. And then just ask them over time, why, you know, what benefits do you get from it? Why do you think I've asked you to do it? And hopefully then we can develop it further where we include one of the midfielders to make a triangle and then that gives them freedom then to rotate and things like that. Um, so that's the first thing I'm a big advocate of. The second thing I'm a big advocate of is opinion. So if uh, we have uh, something in the let's say video where we say that we want to do that better and this is how we're going to do it and we agree it's how we want to do it and we go out on the grass and we try and replicate it and it doesn't work 
then I want the player to say that, look, I'm not sure about that. Maybe we need to go back and the drawing board and, and think about how we're going to do that again. Um, because theory and practice are two different things. And a lot of players learn in a lot of different ways. So some might look at some of the problem solvers, some of the problem doers, and some of them are the, the fantasists who come up with these wonderful ideas. And normally coaches are the, the latter because uh, they love to try and recreate what they see on, on TV. So, no, for me, two things I always try and take on is some sort of decision, and some sort of opinion in an exercise or something that replicates what they're about to face as best as possible. And that can be uh, in 11, the 11 format, or that can be in a small-sided game where the full-back central defender and central defender play together against the winger, striker and midfielder, for example. So it's, it's situations they're going to face then on, on a match day. No, it's um, getting late where you are, so we won't keep you too much longer. But I have a couple of questions. Firstly, the this the role um, that you're moving to, it, it it's going to require quite a big amount of change for you. So it's it's not exactly around the corner. Uh, we we've <laughs> talked about this in the past. The commute is is a uh, a bit of hell. So you are going to be moving away. There's going to be some changes here. What what is probably going to be your biggest challenge, and that can be as part of it can be part of the role or it could just be you know personally what what do you think your biggest challenge would be and what's the the thing that you're most excited about doing uh the thing i'm most excited is doing is trying what i think out uh a lot of academy football here now and i think it's the same in england is that most clubs come in with a document and say, this is how we want to play football. And they come yeah. up with a syllabus of this is how we're going to teach football. <laughs> and then you go out and do it. And then you evaluate it game by game. Um, as I said, I've used a lot of time to come up with how I, how I would like a team led by me to play. And now one of the most exciting things I want to do is to find out if that's going to work or not. <laughs> um, because that's the only way you learn. Um, and then it's up to me then to come up with the best sessions and the best environment possible to help the players improve. Uh, and I'm a big believer that if you improve players, results will come. Um, but it comes down to what you do on the training pitch and, and what you do as much off the pitch as you do on the pitch. And that's not necessarily lots Agreed. of video and lots yeah. of hours in the gym. But, you know, the time you take to speak to players, the time you take to, to make sure the group is as tight as possible. Um, once you do that, then the magic comes on the pitch. And that's something I'm really, really excited to doing, uh, to do. Um, particularly with a group of players I think have a really big potential and, and have a, a really good foundation that's been built upon, um, that they have a togetherness, that they have a willingness to work really hard. And now it's just a case of trying to give it a, a bit more structure and a bit more um, cues so they don't just do it randomly, but they have a bit more understanding of when to do what. Um, the biggest challenge is there's two things for me that I've, I've already found since it was announced. The first one is, is perception, um, because it's unbelievable for me how people see you differently now you're a head coach compared to being someone in the shadows. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, um, but I've already been misquoted in the papers. I've already come out with the worst media line ever of saying that I left as a boy and came back as a man. I liked that when you told me and I still like it now. <laughs> so it's not so much media training, but it's the perception of how you see. Um, the league, if they stay in the, the second tier, is televised nationally. 
you have interviews before the game. You sometimes have interviews at half time. So I'm going to have to learn to deal with that in my own way um, and find that balance between being honest and trying to be a little bit jokey and, and juvile with, with how I like to say things and also not giving too much away. But also just walking around the town and people saying hello and people knowing perhaps more who you are than who they are. Um, particularly in a place like Stuart Isle, which has got 25,000 people in it. So it's not the biggest place on earth. Um, and the second thing is, is switching off. Um, because you hear stories of, of managers working 15-hour days and, and, you know, being sat there at dinner table asking how your day is and you're currently trying to think about the conversation you're having the next day or, or what tactics you're going to play at the weekend. Um, and I think for me, particularly as a young, inexperienced coach, I know that the question's going to come at some point that you're only 29 going on 30, you know, maybe you're too inexperienced for the level. I know that question's going to come, um, but it's about as much working smart as it is working hard. Um, and I think the first three months, there's, there's two sides to the coin. Um, I think the fact that me and my girlfriend are going to live apart is in some ways a positive because it allows me to get settled first before uh, Maria moves down which then means that when she moves down I can offer her better support um, but on the flip side there's going to be a lot of lonely evenings there's going to be a lot of lonely weekends and there's going to be a lot of time to think and it's making sure that I don't get caught up in my own thoughts and left in my own little world that I have strategies like meditating or walking or going out with different people or utilising the surroundings to uh, to be able to make sure that when I am on the pitch and when I am at the stadium, I'm, I'm the best version of myself I can be. It's going to be my, my question, Tom. Have you got any strategies or, or tips for dealing with, with pressure or um, heightened emotions? I know you're going into a, a high-profile role and, like I said, a lot more attention. And I, I can imagine if... I'm not sure if fans allowed back in. Uh, is it going to... What about... Do you, are you scared of emotional hijacking or that kind of stuff on a match? That'd be really interesting to hear how you plan to, to cope with that because it sounds like a, a fascinating opportunity you've got. I think I'd shit my pants though, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to say it on this podcast. I thought it was family friendly. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I... I well, I, as I said, like, two years ago, I had a mental coach. And it'll be someone I know that next year I'm going to use probably quite a bit more in the first part than I have done perhaps previously in the last few months. We 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 went from a time when we spoke every second week to then speaking once a month to now speaking probably every second month or third month. Um, I'm very I'm, I've got a lot more conscious of myself. So um, one of the shifts I've had to make now is that for the last year we've trained with the junior team apart from the school programme we've trained at 10 o'clock in the morning so it's made the days quite natural that you get up you go to work you plan your session you deliver your session you do some admin you talk about the next day's session then you go home and it's all sort of within the confines of a normal day um, whereas because these guys are so professional training's going to get shifted to probably 4 or 4.30 in the afternoon and that means then there's a big part of the day that you quite easily get eaten up thinking about uh, what you're going to do. So you could live at the stadium from eight in the morning until four o'clock before your session's even begun. So I've been very conscious that I'm going to have a routine, that I will 
have the morning as I see fit. Uh, I'm studying a master's on the side of or of doing this part time. So a lot of time of that will be used on that to, 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 to divert my attention somewhere else. I'm going to exercise during the middle of the day to break up the day. So I have a couple of hours of mental stimulation in the morning, something to completely switch off and then have a shower, have some lunch, go to work. Um, the other thing I've learned, particularly the last two years with the new role, is that I now know when I'm getting work up. So I used to have the, the um, process where I couldn't finish something before I finished it. So that meant I didn't eat, or that meant that something else came in or whatever. I just had to finish what I was doing. Whereas now I, I've got so self-aware that when I can feel myself starting to get a bit everything on top of me, I'll take a time out. And usually that involves me going out of the office, getting a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, and just sat either talking to someone about something completely different, weekend or, uh, again, family, or just having a conversation with someone. Or I'll ring someone, maybe Maria, maybe my family or something, and just have, a, again, general conversation. Have a time out, come back with a clean set of, of eyes, and then start again. Um, and I think that self-awareness of yourself is is really really important. I've uh, on the on a match day historically, I'm quite calm in inverted commas. I'm not someone that that shouts every you know every pass, every tackle. I'm not that sort of coach, but um, I'll praise a lot. I'll encourage a lot. I'll give a lot of thumbs up or little bits of words of advice. Uh, the only time I lose my head is when we score a goal and, I, and I'm not responsible then for what might happen. It can range from a little fist pump like this, which is just like a little thing. It could it could go to a double, could go to someone getting an unexpected hug. I've been known to jump on someone's back in delight. There's, there's all manner of things I've, I've done. Just remember, uh, you I will have... be televised now, Tom. So I know. You will have to consider no, this. There will be no running down the touchline if I say it like that. Um, but it's going to be difficult knowing, as you said before, that, you know, normally when I, I have a game, it's probably 50 people watching. Um, whereas now I'm going to have 400 people watching at the minute, could go up to 600 or 1,000 times whatever people have decided to watch it on TV. Um, and that comes with pressure, I know. Um but it goes back to what we've mentioned a lot throughout, that it's about controlling the controllables. And so long as I can control what we do on the training pitch, as long as I can control what we're doing in the game, and so long as I can get the players to understand that they can control what they do in the game, um, then we'll get through it all together. And sometimes, again, I might get a bit emotionally worked up on the touch side and I might have to turn to my assistant and say, hey, just go and, go and lead the team for five minutes. I'm just going to just have a seat, just breathe, take time out. Um, and then start again. So I think it just reflects on self-awareness and just coming up with strategies that you know when you need to take a time out, that you just, you find your time out, however that looks, and you, you, you act upon it. Love that, mate. Uh, I think the, the stuff around the, having a mental coach and, and working on yourself is, it sounds like it's having massive impact uh, I, I don't I was listening to a podcast the other day James Haskell actually and he was talking about his career as a rugby player how if someone said try this supplement it will make you faster or, or wear these boots it will make you kick better players would 
would pay X amount of money for it straight away. Whereas if someone said, go and work on your, your psychology, he said hardly any players did that. They wouldn't buy into it. And I think that's the same for coaches. And I, I think that's probably why you are where you are because you've, you've done a little bit of work on them areas, mate. And I, I'm excited to see how it goes. I, I know you'll, uh, you'll give it everything, mate. So as is tradition, I, I know uh, you might not have prepared for this. Um, but I'm going to ask you a few of our quick core questions, mate. So uh, the fact that you're underprepared is probably going to give better value. So uh, um, just um, just quickly, mate, off the top of your head, in your opinion, who is the best ever Premier League player and why? Dennis Burkamp, because he could do things no other player could do. Could yeah, score he's come up a few times, I think. Could all score could all types of goals. Um, Left-footed, right-footed, could assist, could unlock a defence. Uh, and I just love the fact he hated flying out of all of that. He could <laughs> do so many brilliant things, but could never get set foot on a plane. Yeah. His um, book's great, isn't it? He's really good inside. It's amazing. It's such, a, it's such a really well-written book. And it, you, you get some and you, you, you can see someone else has written it. It's not them. But with that book, you can totally, it's like, it's like reading it and seeing him stand in front of you saying it. So, no, yeah. he's best by, by far. No, I like that. What about um, coach or manager? Best ever coach or manager? I mean, that's difficult because there's a lot of managers that have, have done things that not many have done. So, for me, for success, it's, it's Ferguson. But I think, I think Wenger shades it ever so slightly because of the greater impact he had on football as a whole. You're talking um, you to an Arsenal it. fan here, mate. So you've you've got yeah. two out of two correct there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think he changed attitudes. I think Ferguson was a was a proverbial winner, and his ability to manage people and to reinvent himself and his teams were were amazing. And that's probably a skill that Wenger lacked. But I think Wenger's impact uh, across the whole of British and European football and some of the football they used to play, I think. I think he just edges it. Yeah. Also, another fascinating book. Actually, I've just finished listening to his autobiography, which is it's really good. good. I don't, yeah, really good. I, what I didn't know is he has only ever managed teams who play in red and white, which is I found that fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then last one, Matt, I'm going to I'm going to give you thirty seconds for this one, and it's going to be a tricky one. Give us your all time England eleven in thirty seconds. Oh. Uh, David Seaman. Uh, obviously I'm of a certain age so there's, I know there's new players that I miss out uh, Gary Neville Ferdinand Ashley Cole uh, Frank Lampard Paul Scholes Stephen Gerrard David Beckham uh, that leaves me two up top which would be Wayne Rooney and I want to say Alan Shearer, but Harry Kane's on a different level at the minute. So I'm going to say Harry Kane. Not a bad one. I think that's better than yours, Crads. That was impressive. That was impressive. <laughs> I've got to be honest, though. I'm pretty sure he prepped you for those first two questions of the Arsenal that cancelled. <laughs> we'll let it go. We'll let it go. I'll, I'll um, accept my bung in the post. Yeah, I, take, <laughs> I take pound and kroner, no problem. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. Uh, Tom, mate, I, I think we are going to have to let you uh, 
go and rest and probably think about more plans and sessions and match interviews and all sorts that you got running around your head, mate, for the new year. Um, thank you for your time. And we can't wish you luck enough, mate. I'm, I'm excited to see how you go. I'm sure you're going to do fantastic. Matt, anything you want to add? Yes, thanks very much. Really good catching up with you. And, you know, over the last hour, it is obvious that there was no luck involved. So uh, I won't wish you luck. <laughs> I'll uh, I'll wish you hard work and good planning. All the best, Thank mate. you. I, I, I'll leave you a funny little story. I don't believe in luck. It's just something I say. Um, <laughs> I don't. I, I don't know. I, it's a it's a bad habit. Some people have bad habits of smoking and eating chocolate. Mine is saying luck. Um, it's not a bad. It's not a bad one to have, is it? No, I, I think some people say that you need to be lucky. I just believe you need to be. You need to take your chance when it's there. And that's that's why you may moat to I work really hard because I believe that when you get given an opportunity you take it or you don't and it takes you down a different a different way. So uh I believe I'm ready for next year, but we'll see in six months. I've I've already been told that uh there's been jokes going around at the office of, of people saying, Oh, uh, you know, what you're doing next summer and someone even said I should reapply for the job I've just left and say I can't take it till first of August. So <laughs> <laughs> That tells you where I'm at at the minute. But uh, it's been a real pleasure to be on. It's been really good to catch up with you both. And uh, thanks very much for a really fun just over an hour. Got mate. Well, great great having you on. Pleasure. See you, mate. If you're a scout or coach looking to find or help players, then Pitch is the website for you. It's a startup, but the idea is to complement the scout's role in finding talent, especially in lower leagues. Pitch is likely to arrange trial days in the future, so a scout might be very interested to make a profile. For a coach, it's about the onward development and mental health of released players, helping them find a team or club and provide a talent ID and development reference on Pitch. So make a profile today at www.pitchrmt.com. Thank you.